This is Exchanges of Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're talking about esports and the remarkable growth of professional video gaming and the ecosystem around it. We're joined by Ryan Nolan, Global Head of Digital Gaming in Goldman's Investment Bank, as well as his colleague, Moritz Bayer, who's here because he has an interesting personal connection to esports and also works in the field. We'll hear more on that later. Ryan and Moritz, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with a quick overview of the landscape, the whole digital gaming sector. Ryan, you've said it's experiencing a renaissance. What are the key growth drivers and where do esports fit into the landscape? It's interesting right now because we are seeing as much interest in the landscape as we've seen in the last five years. I think there's a couple of reasons. First off, we really are at a point of convergence between media and technology, where everyone is essentially a media company fighting for eyeballs, fighting for time spent, and interactive media or gaming is a very compelling and engaging component of our time spent on mobile, at home, et cetera. The second category is really the content itself has become even more engaging. That's because of processing capabilities, that's the bandwidth of the network, and I think that publishers in general have really been able to tweak the recipe to deeper engage their end users. And as you think about the third level of that, it turns into something that is very exciting to just watch as a spectator, which leads us to the topic that we're here to talk about, which is esports and having for the first time really people just enjoying watching digital gaming as a pastime. Esports has greater viewership than many traditional sports. I still think a lot of people don't know that fact, but it is true. It's predicted to be the number two most watched sport in just a couple of years. Ryan, what's driving all that growth of viewers? When you think about esports as accessing end users, what I think is interesting about it is it's a category of media that is arriving in a world where OTT, over-the-top access and distribution, is the standard way that many millennials around the world are accessing content. And so that is a very freeing relationship between content owners and publishers and end users, where in traditional sports, there was essentially a broadcaster. With a monopoly, essentially. With a monopoly, but also importantly, kind of deciding what is it we're going to watch and when. And what I think is interesting about Over the Top, and when you combine that with incredible discovery capabilities that we have now through all the various, whether or not it's YouTube, AI interfaces that allow us to kind of discover the next wave of content, this is the golden era of content owners being able to access end users. And so when you think about esports, I think it's fascinating that not only is the entire genre of gaming on the rise around the world, but the ability to access that content through any medium and watch other people do it live only makes the entire category more interesting. Let's talk a little bit about that landscape, that ecosystem. Within esports, there are athletes, leagues, audiences, publishers. Moritz, break it down for us. And I want to start with an overarching observation here. That is that esports today really resembles traditional sports in many ways. And even while the esports ecosystem is still rapidly evolving, we already find counterparts of almost all elements of traditional sports in esports today. To begin with, most importantly, there's the audience, about 350 million viewers worldwide today. That's a number, as you said, that rivals and even surpasses many traditional sports, including basketball or baseball. And let's not forget that esports viewership is still growing at about 20%. Then there are the distribution channels that cater to this audience. These are including new digital formats like Amazon's Twitch in the U.S. or Huya in China, but also traditional TV channels. ESPN or Turner are pushing into this space. Facebook and Hulu have recently entered. 
And then, of course, there are the brands, more than 600 of them, who are fueling the industry, who are sponsoring and advertising. And it's very important to know these are no longer just the usual suspects like gaming hardware brands or components manufacturers, but these are the big consumer brands such as Coca-Cola, MasterCard, the big car makers who have really recognized the esports audience as a highly engaged and affluent millennials. And then at the core of the content production sit the game publishers themselves who develop and distribute the actual video games that are being played. And other than in traditional sports, these publishers actually own the IP, or the sport in this case, which helps them exercise a significant amount of power across the monetization of the esports ecosystem. Moving on, you have the professional events and leagues, most notably this year's Overwatch League organized by Blizzard, which asked competing teams for 20 million or more of an entry bid to become the esports team to represent their home cities, including New York, San Francisco, LA. And finally, this brings us to the real rock stars of esports, the athletes and the teams. Teams have become real brands themselves. Some of them are now multi-sport franchises, which enormous funding and a fan base behind them. Some of the top players in their late teens and early 20s have become millionaires overnight. They're winning prize pools of close to 30 million, such as the Dota 2 International. Monetization is one place where esports has lagged traditional sports. Revenue per viewer, revenue per participant, a little bit lower, even though there's obviously a lot of money flowing into the game. Talk a little bit about what the sports ecosystem is doing to get more money into the system. Honestly, it's the number one question that we deal with from both investors and strategic clients, which is how does really the monetization and the economics evolve in this landscape? And I think there's a couple important things to note. First off, today, it's really a fabulous seat at the table if you are a publisher and the owner of content, because you have such control over the entire digital stack, so to speak, between the first level, the gamers who are enjoying your content, the secondary and third levels of spectators, the esports franchises, live streaming, etc. So one thing I'd point out is monetization in esports is growing much faster than the audience. And so this is an area that is catching up where you start to just think about fundamentally, these are much more valuable eyeballs than I think people tend to just intuitively believe. I will even speak for myself. I was not born a gamer. I don't live in the games as much as Moritz does in terms of actually being a former world champion, which we failed to mention earlier. And in that world, I think you come to it at a bias of like, gosh, video gaming, is that really that rich of an end market in terms of just spectators? And when you do the demographic research, it turns out that is an extraordinarily valuable end market. First off, it's an age demographic that's hard to reach through other channels, millennials. Secondly, you actually find out that compared to the average internet user, they tend to be, and I'm talking about they being video gamers and esport viewers, on average, more highly employed as a percentage. They also make more money than the average viewer. So when you think about just those two demographic factors combined with the age demographic, it really feels like this is an obvious category of media for dollars to follow from marketing, from merchandising, and we expect to see over time the entire value stack develop very similar to sports where you're going to have multiple modes of monetization that will develop over time. So you're an investment banker now, Maurice, but as Ryan mentioned, you were a gamer when you were in high school, ranked number one in the world. You did it for money. Talk a little bit about that period of your life and how being an esports athlete compares to being a traditional athlete. Thank you to both of you for reminding me that I peaked early. Um, but yes, in my earlier years, in the early 2000s, I competed in what was back then the fastest selling game, Blizzard's Diablo 2. 
And I think it's important to go back into this time. The internet was still in its infancy. These were the early days of global online competition. So in some ways, it was even the first time at which esports was even made possible. The concept of trying to challenge everyone everywhere was introduced to many passionate gaming enthusiasts, including myself, who were just out there and ready to beat the world. So because of that, esports was just starting up. There were very few physical competitions or organized leagues, but many games had a built-in leaderboard ranking all the millions of active players at any point in time. The monetization was very limited, so there was no viewership, meant no prize pools, less advertising and sponsoring, no salaries. Most of us were actually selling virtual goods that we obtained in the game. Through online brokers? Yeah, so eBay was also just on the rise at the time. I actually financed a solid portion of my MBA that way. Excellent. So what's your response when people in the sports community say, well, this isn't a real sport? I can see how it's easy to dismiss esports as a sport on the surface. And even John Skipper, former president of ESPN in 2014, I believe, he famously said that he wouldn't be broadcasting esports because, quote unquote, he was mostly interested in doing real sports. But to be clear, we're not talking about Candy Crush or Angry Birds here. Let's dissect a little bit of what makes this a real sport. First and foremost, athletes compete at peak physical performance, period. Many can play at about 10 actions per second, that's keystrokes or mouse clicks. Gamers modify and tune and perfect their gear from choosing the right keyboard, adjusting the weight, the size, the sensitivity of the mouse to perfection. If you need the right mouse pad, the right glide spray, the right armrest, take any of this away and they wouldn't even start a tournament. It's as if you pull a Ferrari driver aside five minutes before the race and say, all we have is a McLaren, good luck, it's pretty much the same thing, but it's not. And that's the level of absolute perfection, true muscle memory that we are at here. These athletes, they train 8 to 12 hours a day. They live together, eat together, analyze their opponents' gameplays over and over. They have professional trainers, masseuses. I even heard about a no-girlfriend policy. Luckily, that didn't exist in 2003. One last note I want to make here. ESPN actually started streaming esports only one year after Skipper made his initial remarks, and they've been successfully broadcasting esports ever since. So, Ryan, you've worked with the athletes, been to the competitions. Anything to add about how it's evolving as a sport? The one thing I want to emphasize also about what Moritz just said is we spend a lot of our time talking to people who live and breathe this world, and it's just become accepted gospel, so to speak, that this is real. These athletes are incredibly talented, and it's compelling content. I would want to just cast that a little bit differently with the audience members of this podcast, which may not actually be as familiar with this, because I think there is this natural skepticism of, is this really an athletic sport that has the same physical challenges that I think we all associate with sports? And there's a couple of things that Maritz said that I think are really interesting. Just talking about the gear for a second. It feels and sounds a lot like how we would all be talking about our gear and other sports that we play casually, whether or not it's tennis and the rackets and the things that we're doing, whether or not it's skiing and the latest skis. And the analogy to golf is a really simple one in that comparing the technology of the latest club heads versus older. So I think that's particularly interesting. And one of the things that you just think about as a strategic investor, how all this space grows is making those tools that make it particularly fun to play these games more and more accessible, a part of a kind of, I would say, the mainstay of gamers' repertoire and enjoying the content category. Talk a little bit about how the life of the athletes changed. You were competing 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you still compete today or is it too hard with the demands of your work life? The esports athlete life today has certainly become more glamorous than it used to be. So the athletes kind of moved from the basement of their parents to the front page of social media. 
and it can be a real full-time job today. That was not the case in the early 2000s. I did make a decent amount of money, especially considering that these were my high school days, and I certainly remember thinking to myself that I would never have to work again, but here I find myself at Goldman Sachs, so I guess jokes on Still me. Still working, yeah. That's right. The one thing that hasn't changed is that esports back then and today has always been at the pinnacle of human perception and reflexes. So it's no wonder, really, there are a few athletes above the age of 25, and I think that's because sheer intelligence peaks roughly around 18 to 20 years, and that's what you need to win. In most of our jobs, in most of our lives, we make up for our increasing age with knowledge and wisdom, but esports is simply unforgiving. It's the young and the fast who dominate. And so that said, it would be impossible for me to compete today. And the truth is that if I can't play and train for at least eight hours a day, I probably wouldn't want to play at all. And frankly, that doesn't quite fit with the current lifestyle. How do people consume esports? I mean, you and I talked about this a while back, and it seems odd to someone in my generation that people are watching this. But then when I watch my kids, they watch other kids play on their phones. So is it just natural to this generation to be watching other people play these games? Yeah, we know that for those who regularly watch esports, it's about two-thirds who watch it on live streams, either on their laptop or on their phone, through platforms like Twitch or YouTube Gaming or Huya. But almost half of esports enthusiasts also regularly follow esports coverage on traditional TV on channels like ESPN or Turner. A little fewer, about 20%, go to physical life events. So esports as an in-person entertainment, and that's gaining phenomenal traction. From my perspective, it's by far the most exciting and immersive way to enjoy esports. And I know it sounds counterintuitive going to a stadium to stare at a bunch of kids who in return are staring at their PCs, but publishers and event organizers have taken creative steps to bridge this dissonance and created a truly outstanding stadium event. There are some specialized real estate firms today, such as Populous, who are designing esports first stadiums, and they look out of this world. I have no doubts that we're truly entering a new frontier of sports and entertainment. And last fall at Goldman, we hosted 30 client executives in the Barclays Center in New York to experience live esports on a world class level. The feedback was astounding. I can only recommend to everyone to try it out, attend a live esports event. I promise it will change your perspective on what esports is and can be, no matter whether you're bullish or bearish today. Let's talk geography. One of the things about esports is it's really global. Pretty big here in the U.S., but 44% of the audience this year will probably be in Asia, and it's big in Latin America as well. What regions are contributing to the growth we're seeing? Asia-Pacific is over-indexed on digital gaming as a whole, but also importantly on esports. And I think there's a couple of fundamental factors about those markets that contribute to that. First off, if you just think about China as such a massive market, many estimates have the casual gamers in China over 500 million alone. And when you think about the content available in China, the reality is, is unlike much of the rest of the world, content is not primarily consumed at home in front of a 40-inch flat-screen TV. Much of it is mobile first. And because of that, it's really been tailored to appeal to an over-the-top type content experience where it is peer-to-peer -peer streaming. It is digital gaming because there's already a dearth of premium content in China for people to be able to consume. And so when you think about just Asia-Pacific as a general market, the ingredients for esports and digital gaming are really ripe for that to be a strong market. The reality is, though, it's not just about an Asia-specific viewership. And I think that's one of the other things that Moritz and I spend a lot of time dispelling, is that it really is an entire global phenomenon that we see really strong athletes coming out of Western Europe and Europe in general. And North America is the home of some of the strongest 
esports publishers in the world. So it actually is very much a global experience, one that if you just thought this was purely a Asia phenomenon or a Chinese-specific metric that's driving all this, the answer is it's not. Having said that, those are really strong areas. The other thing, if I just go back to one other question that you were asking earlier that I think relates to what Moritz was saying is, the athletic component of this is actually really astounding. And it's one thing that many of us on the outside don't quite always appreciate. But when you think about the fundamental drivers of why this is going to be a very enduring and exciting category of content, there is this aspirational aspect of it where 18, 19-year-olds, early 20s are making million dollars a year and are stars. And we're seeing colleges actually hand out scholarships for esports and having esports facilities on campus. So it has all the makings of how do you really make this just exciting for young people? Well, first off, you make the players who are good at it celebrities. And you see that developing in esports just like we've seen in analog or offline sports that I think is fascinating. So if you're an investor who wants access to that demographic, particularly in Asia and global demographic, or you're a brand that wants to market to it, this seems like one of the most promising ways to go. It was a big year last year, a year where it broke out a little bit of the niche. There's more professionalization, more investment, a lot of growth. Mortz, talk through some of the dynamics, what we should be looking for this year. Yeah, it's been a great year. Both 2016 and 2017 have been fantastic for esports. Here are my predictions for 2018 and, and maybe beyond as well. First of all, I strongly believe we'll see esports and digital gaming more broadly continue to push into the mainstream. More viewers, more monetization, more spending per fan, more brands, more sponsorships. And you mentioned the professionalization of esports leagues and teams. I think that will really pick up with the franchising models we've started seeing this year and will likely grow to become a solid counterpart, the teams and the athletes, to the powerful game publishers today and rock stars and really teams in the center of tomorrow's esports. We'll likely see an even broader range of esports game genres, which will cater to a wider age range, a higher proportion of female athletes and viewers, and likely also bring sports games to the front of esports. Because interestingly enough, most of today's popular esports titles are not digital versions of traditional sports like FIFA or Madden, but they've developed their own admittedly very confusing formats such as MOBA, multiplayer online battle arena. This confusion and niche factor will have to go away a bit for esports to reach the next level of global reach. And finally, we expect esports to also push to the mobile screens. Right now, they're almost exclusively played on PC, where high-end, high-performance peripherals provide the athletes with the platforms they need for their muscle memory, fine-tuned to perfection. It really lifts the skill ceiling all the way for games to become something you can pick up in a day but can only master in a lifetime. But as we continue to figure out mobile screens, input methods, I believe there's a role for esports in the mobile lives of today's consumers. There's been talk of a potential debut at the Paris Olympics, which is in 2024, of esports. Ryan, what are your thoughts on the likelihood of that, and how would that change the whole industry? Yeah, well, I think importantly, people should understand that actually this is happening. There have been essentially side sports or side games already in the Brazilian Summer Olympics recently where esports was a competitive category. Now, it wasn't a medal sport, but you're starting to see, I think, the makings of this conversation increasing where... Paris is already considering it as a medal sport. And then you think about the Olympics to come in Los Angeles in 2028. I mean, Los Angeles is the home of some of the best publishers in the world for gaming. It feels like it's going to be a really ripe environment to actually see this become 
an Olympic category. And once that has had the stamp of imprimatur on the category itself, you could see it becoming even wider spread in terms of adoption, media rights, licensing opportunities, merchandising, et cetera. So I don't think of it as a gating item, but it is one of many tailwinds that I think we're going to see over time that only make the category more and more attractive. You've been a media telecom banker for a long time, but you recently really started focusing on digital gaming. What surprised you most about the evolution of the sector? We at Goldman try to take a differentiated perspective around gaming, and that is, I think traditionally the category has been covered as a media category. And from a banking perspective, it was very media-focused. The reality is it's evolved much beyond that, where when you think about some of the fundamental drivers of what's going to change the content category, it's technology, it's 5G for mobile, releasing the quality of the gaming content from the mobile currently limited by the hardware specs to really being left to cloud gaming and having infinite or essentially limitless compute power in the cloud. So 5G, highly technical capabilities to deliver richer and richer content in the mobile. You think about AR, VR as being a really interesting category of new content out there. Pokemon Go, a phenomena overnight where you see that for the first time content going beyond your screen into the physical world and allowing your phone to be kind of the digital connection of that is super interesting. Again, fundamentally a technology story. One of the other things coming on the gaming landscape that's truly disruptive is streaming or cloud computing for gaming. And that is a little bit further off, and I think the technology is particularly hard, just given how important latency is for gaming. So you actually really need the build-out of the entire network to really benefit from it. Otherwise, you have people closer exactly. to the source are just going to win every time. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, by the way, there's a lot of analogies to our trading business. High-frequency right? trading. Exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. you know, there's those limitations on it. But when you think about all that, to me, the surprising part of gaming is that some of the stories of why it's becoming such a compelling category of content, and the markets reflect this, is there are really positive technology tailwinds driving the entire industry that only make the content more engaging, the access and the reach farther. And what you see kind of as I think a proof point of that is that it's now a content category that people enjoy watching even when they're not playing. How's the view of investors changed about this? When you first started pitching investors in this space, what kind of reaction did you get? And obviously now there are more believers, but it still must require some education for investors who haven't looked at the space. Yeah, I think we do more meetings than anyone on the street on this. And crowdsourcing that data into something that answers that question is actually a pretty interesting exercise for both of us because the evolution has actually been pretty stark in the changes of investors' views and strategic views. I think when we started doing this, and importantly, Moritz, who was an early prophesizer of how significant this category was going to be, it was a lot of skepticism. And I've already shared a couple of those anecdotes throughout today, but it was a lot of, look, isn't this low-quality eyeballs? Isn't this also a fad? Is it really enduring? Can you really make money off it? Those were always kind of the early resistance points that we were breaking down. Today, it's much different. I don't think we take any meetings anymore now where people question whether or not this is real. I don't think there's any questions anymore on that it's enduring. The questions we get now are much more around, gosh, how do I, no pun intended, play this theme and this category? Where is there money to be made and where can I deploy capital? And the reality of it is, is that's actually a tough question to answer. It relates a little bit to my first point, which is today, if you're a publisher, it's a fabulous trend and ecosystem to take advantage of because you own the content and there's a digital stack behind you that you're able to monetize by most simply selling more games. 
it's a lot harder to find ways outside of that ecosystem to make money. There's people putting a lot of money into teams and leagues, and those are interesting, but I think it's hard to deploy big pools of capital towards that. There's some streaming platforms that are super interesting out there. Amazon's acquisition of Twitch is a great example of one of the premier assets in the space if you wanted purely a platform exposure to gaming and didn't own the content. It was really an an attractive asset from that perspective. There are a few others like that out there. The last point I would make around it is that if you are trying to deploy capital to it, one thing that you would have to expect is that it's going to take time for the entire ecosystem to develop like traditional sports. And so understanding that is an important strategy for an investor because I don't think there is a single bet to place on esports that is a clear winner. I think the entire ecosystem is going to enjoy richer valuations, richer monetization opportunities, and broader reach with time. And yet today, you're looking at per participant or per viewer, pennies or dimes, whereas the big established league are getting dollars like 10, 12, $15 $15 per sport. So there's a lot of room for growth. By the way, it's those benchmarks that you kind of point to and look at and take a lot of excitement out of it that there's going to be real opportunities in this space to make for investors a lot of money. But as an ecosystem as a whole, there's going to be a lot of players that are attracted to this and will ultimately develop valuable services and products. All right. Well, thank you to both for joining us. An education for me. Thank you for having us. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on March 14th, 2018. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.